One of the things that, that I've come to know in my experience, and I'm sure you do too, is whenever one of your kids butters you up, you know, here, Dad, here's a glass of water, milk, what would you like? Here's a pillow for your head. Can I put your feet up? You pretty much know there's, there's an agenda, right? Yeah, can you take me to Best Buy now? <laughs> That's a, uh, we sense that, um, the idea of uh, hidden agendas and, and alternative motives. And, and now for my part, and I think you shared this with me, um, we don't really like uh, secret agendas or hidden agendas or alternative motives. Um, at, at least I don't. And I, I think I speak for almost everybody here. When, when there's an ulterior motive or there's a secret or hidden agenda, yep, you almost feel like it's a bit dishonest, maybe a, a bit manipulative, um, not being straight with you. Which is why I wanted to just take a moment and reiterate something that I, I said at the beginning of this, this series, and I think it, it, it's worth saying again. Um, the, before we started this series in Hebrews 11, which is uh, going through the different characters of the Old Testament, we've been following chronologically from no, Abel to uh, Enoch to Noah, and now we're at Abraham, um, that these are, these are lessons of faith. And the very first message I said, listen, this is the, the heart behind this, just being straight up, full disclosure. Like, the main hope and prayer in this series of messages is that um, God's people would, would, would serve him and serve each other as an expression of love. Um, most of us in this room know that's what we're supposed to be doing. If you're a Christian and you're part of a body and you should be a part of a body of Christ, and if this isn't your ch- main church, then you need to be doing it in the church you attend. And, um, but that's, the, that's, that, that's really just the, the end goal. Be, that's, that's, if you want to call it, that's the purpose of these messages, is that God would move his people to love and good works. There it is, full disclosure, all right? Now, let me just also lay alongside that full disclosure uh, a rather humbling acknowledgement on my part that I have, I, I know with my head, but I, I'm, I'm realizing it more and more in my heart. And God's at work in me too, as he is in, in your life. And that is, here's the realization. This is a truth that needs to sink into the heart. Um, no matter how well I preach these messages, uh, no matter how biblically or theologically correct they are, no matter how articulate or inarticulate or eloquent or passionate or inspiring these messages on these characters may be, I have come to that heart realization (laughs) that I can't change anything. I can't change anything. At the end of the day, after these series of messages come to an end, um, I, my person, I can't change a single person here. Uh, Why? Because I I have, and, and you know this, I have absolutely no jurisdiction, I have no dominion, I have no control over your heart. I just don't. So I am, I can't do anything. It's the, it's the Spirit of God's domain to exercise power in the human heart and to move and stir in a way that people are moved by the Scripture through the Spirit to love and good works. That is to do what the Lord calls us to do. That's an admission on my part. So that's the heart behind it, but at the same time, an admission can't do anything by myself. And you know, quite honestly, and part of this is just a reflection on the nature of Christian ministry. 
And I'm not talking about pastoral ministry in particular. I'm talking about what all of us are called to. We're called to minister. We're called to serve, right? Um, and one of the, what makes it difficult is that serving, whether it's teaching Sunday school, uh, greeting people, having a small group, showing up at the tutoring center and, and tutoring, um, and the list could go on of, of Christian um, avenues of, of serving and ministering. Um, that all of those works are so intangible. Like you never really know visibly if you make a difference. And sometimes even when you think you make a difference, passage of time happens and the person that you spent so much time investing in walks away from the Lord. Like, what was that? What up with that? Like, it, just the nature of it is so we're not in control of it. We're not in control of outcomes. We, we, we can't, we don't see measurable differences most of the time because we're dealing with a, a, a type of service that is largely unseen. It's just, it's the truth. And it's sometimes hard to be motivated to serve something that is so intangible, something we can't manage that we can't control. Contrast that to how, and I'm kind of jealous sometimes of carpenters. You know why? Because they actually get to, with the strength of their hands and nail and hammer, they get to build something. At the end of the day, they look at it and go, wow, I built that, right? And you know what that's like. You, you redecorate your house, new, 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 new drapes, new paint, you remodel a room, you take an old junky car and you spend 10 years on it and it's perfectly restored and you just, you sit back and you're like, it's huh, awesome. There's, that's motivating, because it's, it's tangible, it's, it's physical. You can see it, you can touch it, you can smell it. And there's a part of you that is a part of the creation of that. And so you look back, kind of step back and go, yeah, I actually achieved something. That's, that's, that's not Christian ministry. There's, there's no time when you come, like, step back and go, wow, I did that. It's like, no, it's not how it works. I mean, our, our faith targets the heart. That's an invisible thing. You can't see the human spirit. Uh, we're told by Paul that our main enemy is it's not ISIS. Uh, we wrestle against principalities and powers um, that are alive in this world. Um, we tell people to believe in God. We just spent, I don't know how many minutes, just worshiping a God we can't see. He's not tangible to our touch or our sight. Uh, we tell people that there's a world coming purchased by the blood of Christ that's better than anything you can possibly imagine called the new creation, where God will dwell with his people. It's invisible to us. That's what makes Christian ministry a difficult thing. We naturally, as people, gravitate, motivationally speaking, to the tangible and the physical, things that we can control and we can do because we feel good at the end of the day. What about Christian ministry where you're dealing largely with the intangible, the invisible, things you can't manage or control? Well, I, I submit to you that one of the reasons, just perhaps one of the reasons why Christians find motivation and service um, waning uh, is just that, is you realize that much of what we do is invisible and it's intangible. You know, I was telling David this week, if, if, and I've seen this in other churches, but if you start like a, a building campaign, um, a building campaign to, to, you know, 
to have a structure that kids are going to, you know, play basketball in. You can it motivate people. You get that started, people are motivated. Next thing you know, there's a building and people go, yeah, we did that. People jump on board with that, but invite people to a, a prayer meeting. And a few people show up. Once again, you realize that we motivationally gravitate towards that which is tangible. And our Christian work is largely intangible and invisible. So how is it? How is it that we can like, reestablish the motivation to want to invest in what you can't see? To invest in something that you, you don't see the physical stones or you don't see metal, you don't see, see um, brick and mortar. It's, just, it's invisible. How is it that we can be motivated? And I think Abraham is an example. He's the, the fourth character we're looking at. And one of the things that marks his life is that he was willing to believe and move despite the fact that he couldn't see. Now, most of you are familiar with Abraham, for those who might not be. You know, he's the... The father of, Abraham means father of multitudes or father exalted, perfect for Father's Day, right? Last week it was Noah and the ship, and this week it's of Abraham, it's Father's Day. Um, Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, the, the patriarch of the Jewish people, and, and also the Arab people, which is why there's so much conflict. Um, but he's a person who is regarded as a man of faith in the scripture. And more, more text is devoted to him in Hebrews chapter 11 than any other character because he is um, one of the greatest examples of faith in the Old Testament. And he shows, it what, shows it what, it, what, it, what it looks like to, to live a life of faith, believing in something invisible. Now here's the text, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 12. This is uh, a summation of Abraham's faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Now, that word inheritance is absolutely central and key. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him, who, uh, him faithful who has promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of the heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of, of the sand by the seashore. I want to just simply ask and answer two questions with reference to this text. One... What is the nature of this inheritance that is promised? And let me just back up and say, you know, inheritance is something that God um, promises to Abraham. An inheritance is something, an irrevocable gift. Uh, it, it, it's something precious. It's treasure. Most of us are familiar with inheritance and so forth. It's a, it's a legal um, uh, promising of something of value to somebody else. Um, and God gave this promise regarding inheritance. And it's central. It's not just to this story, but to the Bible, the whole idea of inheritance. So what is it? What is the nature of that inheritance that God promises Abraham? And secondly, how does his faith live in light of the fact that he can't see it? It's how does faith live? So it's kind of the what and the how. The first question, what is the nature of the inheritance? There's three things in this passage that kind of 
are the essence of this inheritance. You might be thinking, this has absolutely nothing to do with me, so I'm going to fall asleep. It has everything to do with you, so I encourage you to stay tuned, okay? These underlined passages tell us that at the, at the heart of this, this, this inheritance that God promises to Abraham are three things. It, it, it consists of a place, real estate, there you have it right there, a place that he was going to receive. It's stated again in verse 9, the land of promise. He's promising about piece of land. Um, and then it's caught up again in verse 10, where it's the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. So there's, it's a place, piece of real estate, space in which to dwell. It also consists of a family. That's the last part. It's underlined, descendants, as many as the stars of the heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So you have this space, this real estate that is promised, uh, a piece of real estate that is going to be filled with the family, the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren all the way through of, of Abraham. So here you have a place and you have a family. And at the center of it all, and the most important part of it all, is, is God himself. This is called the city that is, whose foundations uh, and designer and builder is, is God himself. This is talking about the city of God, the habitation of the Most High, where God dwells with his people. And that, those three things are the essence of, of the inheritance. I always think of it as the three Ps. You've heard this before. It's a place in which the people of God dwell with the presence or person of God. People, place, and presence. And that is core to this inheritance. Um, or another way you can think of it is, because I think all three of those things are, are the very heart and essence of what true home is all about. Home. Where God dwells with his people in a space. That's what we were made for. That's where our heart should long to be. That's where our treasure should be, and we should be motivated to do everything possible to be there. I, home for me growing up was a, a precious place, and I recognize not everybody had a great upbringing. So for some people, home is a very painful memory. Me, not that way. I, as a kid, I remember at different points going, man, I never want to grow up. Like, seriously, I, I thought that. That's, that's how good my home was. It was a place where I was loved a place where I, I, I belonged, a place where I had an identity of my own, a place where, where I, was, I was valued. And so when I left at 17, um, I didn't leave because I wanted to leave. I left because I pretty much had to leave. And whenever I took leave, because I was in the military, I went one place. I never went on exotic vacations. I went home because that's where I wanted to be. I just wanted to be with my family in the place that I grew up. I, I just wanted to be home. My college summers, you know, I didn't spend it in other places. I went home. I went to be in the place where my heart longed to be. Uh, I remember back in 2004. Now, my home is different because my home is where my family is. But I remember going to India with uh, Chuck Hree and Ignatius John. And um, we were there for, I don't know, 10, 12 days. And by the way, what I'm about to say, for those of you salesmen who like travel a gazillion days a year and you're always away from your family, what I'm about to say is going to make me sound like a big, huge baby. And I am because I love home. But it was 2004, and we were over there. It was foreign food. 
I do like Indian food, by the way, especially spiced up a little bit. But foreign food, foreign language, foreign smells, foreign dress, foreign religion all around me, foreign traffic, (laughs) crazy driving in India, make a heart attack. Um, And you know what? I just, I couldn't wait to go home. I had no pictures of my wife and children, not on my phone and not on my wallet. The other guys did. I was just, I was jealous. I just, I missed home right? That's where my heart was. And I remember the last leg of the journey back, you know, we were flying from, I think it was Bangalore to um, Hong Kong, and then Hong Kong to SFO, San Francisco. And that is one long flight, right? Especially when you're 6'3 in in coach, (laughs) sitting right behind a, a bulkhead, no place to stretch out your feet. I'm just like locked there, you know. It was horrible. And all I could think of was just, I just can't wait to get home. But because I was locked there, and it was this 15-hour flight, took, it felt like about a thousand years. It just took forever. And I kept listening to the same song over and over again on my MP3 player. I didn't have an iPod or an iPhone back then. I was anti-Apple, but I've converted since then. So, you know, back then it was an MP3 player, and I was listening to the same song over and over and over and over again. And yes, I'm one of those guys who likes to listen to a song until I wear it out and then I move on. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was a song called 100 Years by Five for Fighting. And if it's a surprise to you that the pastor listens to non-Christian music, I do sometimes. This particular song, a reflection about life, and a, and a rather insightful one. But there's this line in it that um, I'm just dreaming, counting the ways to where you are. Just dreaming, counting the ways to where you are. And I just kept listening to that song because I can't wait to go home. I can't counting the ways to where you are. Just want to be with my wife and family. I just wanted to go home. That's, and you know what? If I had crashed in the middle of Pacific, on a, probably wouldn't have lived because you really don't live in an airline accident in the ocean, right? But if I had, and I was on a desert island, I'd get in a canoe and I'd paddle my way across the Pacific. If I had to swim, I'd swim. I, I'd do that because you know what? My heart is home. And it's a treasure to me. And that's, that's how motivating the idea of home is. A place to be. Ironically, in the story, I flew in, spent 12 hours, and had to fly out to Chicago again. Horrible. But that's home. And most of us can feel that, who, who have a, a place to belong, a place to be. But you know what? The, the, the truth of the matter is, if you look at it objectively, you realize that um, even home here is broken and changing, right? Um, what it once was, it, my childhood growing up, is not what it is now. Divorces, fragmentation, disbelief, um, addiction. Um, you know, your kids grow up, they move out of the house. At some point, one of the spouses is probably going to have a disease, um, gentleman yesterday my wife met has Alzheimer's. I bet it was at one point a really happy relationship. But that's, that's the world in which we live in, which the whole idea of home just disintegrates. Um, certainly by death, right? And if, if this is all we have to live for, if, if, this, is, if this is our inheritance, if, if this is it, like this is, this is little 70, 80 years, if you're blessed... If this really is it, like this is the idea of home here is it, at the end of time, we're going to be disappointed. We're going to be left with nothing, absolutely nothing. 
And what the Lord is saying to Abraham is he's promising to him, I'm taking you home. In the way that home was meant to be, the Garden of Eden was filled with those three things. The presence of God in a place with a family. And God's saying to Abraham, guess what? We're going back there. I'm taking you home. Only it's not a place that's going to fall apart and decay. It's going to be a place that is permanent. It's going to be a place of perfection where sin is eradicated in the life of my people and I inhabit that place with them. That's, that's home and that's what he's promising to us. And, and church, our hearts have to have that as our treasure. Has to be our treasure. If it's not, we'll continue to live trying to make this place heaven. And it's not, and it never will be. By the way, you might say, well, this is Abraham's promise, um, not, not ours. He said, I'm not a Jewish person. And I'll tell you what, that's the beauty and of, of the grace of God and, the, and the, um, what Christ has done. Because the time you move into the New Testament, I'll make this brief. It's like Paul writes, in Christ, because of what he's done and his death and his resurrection, abolishing the law so that we're now one person. He says, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him that is in Christ, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our, what's the next word? Inheritance. Until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And he says something similar in chapter 3, verse 6. This mystery, talking about the mystery of Christ, what he came to do, is that the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people like you and me, the Scots and the Germans and the Nicaraguans and the Nigerians, and it's like the Gentiles are their fellow, next word, heirs. Inheritance, heirs. Members of the same body or family and partakers of the promise. Whose promise? This promise, the promise that God has given to Abraham, I'm taking you home. That's our promise. Do you believe that promise? And do you believe it in a way that makes heaven and the new creation not here, but forward? So it's ours. This is ours. You hold on to it, bank on it, live in it, think about it, dream about it, hope in it. Wonder what it's going to be like, imagine it. Second question, this will be significantly shorter. I'm a little over. Um, how does faith live for this inheritance? Okay, that's the, if that's the essence of the inheritance, how do we live for it? What, how does it show itself in our lives? And, and the answer is this, that faith lives for an inheritance, dot, dot, dot. And then I'm going to, there's, there's, there's three by faith statements in these verses, verses 8 through 12. It says, by faith Abraham, then by faith he, by faith she or Sarah. Three by faith. And each one of them introduce a slightly different aspect of what faith looks like um, as it believes the promise of God regarding the inheritance. The first one has to do with, with our physical eyes and sight. That is, faith lives for an inheritance that lies beyond what we see. That is beyond what's tangible and physical to come back to the introduction. You can't hold on to. You can't lift it. You can't smell it. I mean, look what Abraham's life was. By faith, Abraham obeyed, followed, when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, next phrase, not knowing where he was going. 
not knowing where he was going. God just said, basically, listen, Abraham, or Abe, come, I'm taking you somewhere. This is going to be a, a gift, a present, an irrevocable gift of your inheritance, and I'm going to give it to you, so just come. Pack your bags, pack your wife, pack your possessions, bring them. But didn't tell him where he was going, right? That's, that's in the story that, that was read. Okay. If I, if I told my wife, like, sweetheart, we're going somewhere, and she goes, where are we going? I said, I don't know. She thinks I was a fool. I, I can't imagine what the conversation was like between Sarah and Abraham. It's like, hey, honey, pack the bags, pack the kids, pack the donkeys and camels and all of our possessions, and, and we're going to take a caravan. Take a caravan where? Abraham, I don't know. So you don't know where we're going, and we're taking the camels and all the kids and all that stuff. Not the kids, but, you know, cousins. And... No, I don't know where we're going. So is there a pool, hotel, spa, shopping, <laughs> nails? Can I please get my nails on? He's like, no, this is like nothing. Didn't have to see it. And they left. That's part of the, part of the, uh, the challenge of, of a faith that doesn't have to see the outcome to act, right? Most of the time, I'm just, again, speaking generally. Maybe you're not like this, but you're probably the exception. Most of the time, in order for us to invest in something, we have to know the outcome, what it's going to look like at the end. And if we don't know what it's going to look like in the end, and we don't think it's going to be successful in our way of thinking or seeing it, then we don't venture into it. Abraham didn't have to do that. His faith didn't have to see the outcome. It didn't have to see um, a picture. He didn't have to see a brochure. He didn't have to see a video presentation on what the, what the, what the land was going to look like. He didn't have to. He just went. Imagine if you and I, if you sensed either by reason of the scripture or God brought about a conviction that you needed to be doing something, like with the gifts and life that you have, and you sensed you were supposed to do something, and you decided, hey, I don't know what this is going to look like. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. I, I just know that I'm supposed to take a risk, not knowing what it's going to look like, and I'm simply going to step out in faith, trusting the outcome to the Lord. If he says jump out of the box and you feel like it's out of the box for your person, and instead of having to see what it's going to look like, just saying, okay, I think God wants to break out of the box here, me to break out of the box, and just, just to do it, step up, step out, whatever it is. You don't, you don't have to see the outcome. You don't have to see the final product. You don't have to see the measure of success at the end to simply step out in faith and trust the Lord and follow him, right? That's his faith. Didn't have to see it. You don't have to see it. You don't have to see the outcome. All you have to do is follow and step out. That's it. That's what faith does. You don't have to see the end goal. God does. Leave it up to him. The second aspect of faith, the second by faith statement, is not just beyond sight, what you can see physically, but faith lives for an inheritance that lies beyond our death or beyond the scope or horizon of our lifetime. Again, underlying passages. This is rather remarkable. It would seem foolish in our, our culture. So he went, he left, finally made it there, and then guess what? He lives there as a foreigner, not as the owner, not as the one who has the grant deed or the deed to the property. 
He lives as a foreigner, and he lives in a tent. He's not living in a building. He doesn't ever put down roots. There's no construction project, which is why there's no archaeological evidence for Abraham. He lived in a tent. Tents don't survive. So he's wandering around as a nomad, if you will, homeless. He had wealth, but homeless. And he did that his whole life without ever once even God opening escrow for him. You, you and I would probably say, listen, Lord, I'm 90 years old. You said this is going to be mine. What, am I going to have it for five minutes? But the thing is, is he, he lived to the very last breath Believing that God was going to make good on the promise. That this is my place. This is inheritance for for me. How can you explain the foolishness of that? Except he believed. Now this is is strong belief. He believed, had to believe, that death itself could not prevent God's promises from coming true personally, experientially for him. Death itself can't stop this promise, which is why he lived and died in faith beyond the horizon of his life. Death itself. Somehow, in his way of thinking, God's going to overcome death so that I can experience that because I, ha- I don't have it. And the only way that can happen, church, is resurrection. And that, of course, brings the work of Christ front and center to die, to cleanse the people, and to rise to guarantee that someday he will call our names and we too will rise to experience that inheritance. Do you believe in that? Like, I don't mean intellectually. I mean, is your treasure that you're living for beyond the horizon of your life? Is it? Because if it's not, then what it really means is that this is how it works itself out. It means you're living for here. It means you're trying, trying to make heaven out of here. And you know what? That most of the time tends to destroy the good but temporal gifts God's given you here. Because you're going to spend most of your time trying to make heaven out of your marriage, trying to make heaven out of your, your family, trying to make heaven out of your house and your property and your cars and your wealth and your 401k plan. And when it starts to fall apart, you're going to, you're going to find yourself frustrated because this is all you have. And then you're going to put so much pressure on what you have to conform to this idea of perfection that you're probably going to damage it. But how much better is it to realize this is a gift. My, my marriage is a gift. My family is a gift. You are a gift. But you know what? My treasure should be and your treasure should be that which is eternal. God the inheritance. I want to be with God, I want to be with God's people, and I want to be in God's place. That's, that's where our heart should be. Now, whether it's there or not is, is really between you and the Lord. Um, but if it is there, you're going to find a whole different motivation for life and a whole total different uh, goal of life. And the last one that you see, the last by faith, um, is that faith lives for an inheritance that lies beyond our power. 
It's not only beyond the scope of our physical eyes, not only beyond the scope or the horizon of our, of our life or death, but you realize that it's also beyond power. If, if part of that inheritance is a family, well, there's a, there's a big problem here in terms of Abraham and Sarah. Uh, they were capable of having kids, right? And it, it makes that statement over and over and over again. However, really quickly, I, I have to say for all, uh, I love this ESV, English Standard, Standard Version, but I think it gets verse 11 wrong. That I think that it's not Sarah's faith that's in view, but it's Abraham's faith that's in view. Both in terms of how Genesis reads and also the way the original reads in, in, in verse 11. Which is why the New American Bible translates it differently. And here's how it translates it. And I think it's a better translation. By faith, he... It's about Abraham, not Sarah. By faith, he received power to generate. And that phrase, power to generate, in ancient language, that verbiage is exclusive to male procreation. So, by faith, he received power to generate, even though he was past the normal age, Sarah was sterile, and he was as good as dead. It's painting an impossible picture. Hey, you're going to have a family? Abraham, listen, I'm I'm as good as dead when it comes to having kids and my wife's sterile. How's that going to happen? In order for this family to take shape, that is part of the inheritance, um, God was going to have to do something supernatural beyond the power of, of, of a human ability, the power of the human body. And that's exactly what he did. Supernaturally, Isaac came along. Right, and, that's, and at the same time, not only was it supernatural, but this is the part that, that's important for us to grasp, is that they still played a role in it. Abraham and Sarah still were instrumental means by which God supernaturally started this big family, this eternal family of promise. And that, that's worthy of just a, a pause. Uh, because that family, that, that's, that's part of this, this great uh, inheritance, that, that family that has been forming through the centuries con- is continuing to be formed. Um, and, 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 and into the New Testament, where, it's, where every tribe, tongue, and nation are now included, and all the Gentiles are now included in this promise and this blessing, and... and uh, and Jesus tells us, listen, the gospel of the kingdom is going to go to the ends of the earth, to all nations, and then the end's going to come. And the idea is that the family is going to be fully and completely formed at some point in the history future. And at that point, the end comes. And at that point, the inheritance is received. Because people believe in this, this gospel that God has done something decisive in the person of Christ to actually make this inheritance real for us. And we, while it's a supernatural thing, this family that's taking shape, it's a supernatural thing. It's not something you join like the Marine Corps. It's something you're born into when the Spirit of God comes upon you, regenerates your heart, and he opens your heart, and you're like, wow, God is right. You start to see him with the eyes of your heart, and you see the truth with the eyes of your heart. That's something you're supernaturally born into. This is, this is something that is accomplished by God's grace, God's power, not us. At the same time, It's like Abraham and Sarah. God chose us as the instrumental means by which that family is built. We are, you and I, the instrumental means by which that family is built. So Paul said, listen, 
talked about his purpose in equipping the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, the family. And that's part of the motivation behind acts of service and love, is the realization that while this work is far beyond our power, it nevertheless is a work that God uses us to do in the formation of and the building up of his inheritance and our inheritance. And you're not just doing this. We're not, we, we don't just simply serve the body or serve the community for the sake of the gospel um, for, for no ultimate reason. No, there's, there's a grand picture. This is part of the inheritance promised by God to us and made available in the person of Christ. And if God's people, let me rephrase, if Christians are completely indifferent to either the building up of or the expansion of that family, restate, if the Christian, if you, if I, am completely indifferent, that is, I don't really care about the building up or the expanding of the family of God, then we're living for the wrong thing. And our motivations are wrong. We're living for here, not there. And that's something to just think about. And if you find yourself on the, yeah, I'm pretty indifferent, well, we have a gracious Lord, and um, I know that when we call out to him, I've been praying with a group of guys on Wednesday for the last eight weeks. Sometimes there's more of us than others, but we've been praying for renewal of faith that faith would be awakened. And out of that faith, there would, we would care. Because I believe God answers. And the reason we, 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 we're, we're trusting in this promise, my friends, and last point, is because he who promised is what? That's like, at the end of the day, it gets beyond just the promise, beyond the, 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 uh, the inheritance, to the very character and heart of God that he says, I'm going to do this. And everything in biblical history has shown us that he makes good on what he says, so it's coming. Live for it. Pray for it. And if you're not, repent for it. And let's ask God to do a work of renewal in our hearts. Amen. God, make this so in our church, we ask, um, in the name of our Lord. This is his bride, his church, and we just pray your power. And we pray that um, we would have a humbled heart, and that we would um, seek your face, turn away from our wicked ways if we are walking in them, and pray and seek your face once again. Lord, thank you for this inheritance that you have promised to us by grace and grace alone. Um, that you have won for us through Christ and Christ alone. Um, may our hearts be set uh, on fire for that world-changing, life-altering truth. Amen.